I say four score and seven years ago, if you're from America, you immediately think Abraham Lincoln. But if you just know English as your second language or you come from somewhere else, that just is simply a number. And what I mean by that is in scripture, there's some things where unless you're in that world, unless you're in that culture, it might not make sense or you might gloss over it when it holds a lot of weight or a lot of density to its context. And one of the huge things about that truth is the, the truth of the temple. Now temple, we really don't get that because we don't really have them today, or at least we don't use that word for the things that we're talking about when we talk about temples. But temple is a huge idea all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And it starts all the way on the very first page of the Bible with the story of creation and the story of Adam and Eve. One thing that is hugely fascinating about the story of creation and Adam and Eve is it's actually a temple building text, but we miss out on that fact. If you look at other creation stories from other societies back in antiquity and beyond or before, one thing you'll see is that when it's a temple building text, they all, no matter what it is or no matter which one you're reading, do two things. No matter what they're talking about, there's always two variables that are identical when it's a temple building text. And the first one is that at the end of that creation or at the end of when something's done or when the temple's done, what they would do is they would kind of uh, seal that temple and they would put the image of the God in that temple. We usually think of that as like a statue or some type of thing out of gold or bronze that's kind of an image of that God in the temple. And then after that, the next day, they would have kind of what they would call an inauguration ceremony or a celebration ceremony uh, where they would kind of then rest, everyone would rest and they would party and they would then invite the presence of that God to dwell in that temple. Now, if you know the story of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, pretty closely, you know that that's exactly what's going on in Genesis, but there's a few unique things about it. Instead of a statue of gold and bronze, we don't see that in Genesis. What we see is the writer of Genesis say that it's an image of God being a human being. So the image of the God placed in the temple is actually humans, Adam and Eve. They have breath and life and flesh about them. And then you get to the end where there's actually an inauguration ceremony or a celebration, which we call the seventh day of creation from the scriptures, or we also call the inauguration of the Sabbath, where God was invited to then rest and pull his presence down on to earth. Now, the crazy thing about the story is unlike all the other ones, there's one, even though it has a lot of similarities, there's one thing it doesn't have like all the other stories, and that is the fact that there's no building. We don't see a brick and mortar space where God is then invited to dwell in that place. But if we have those other two variables, it seems to me like the writer of Genesis is actually trying to say something very different. And he's trying to say that that seventh day, that day of celebration, that day of inauguration is actually the day where God flooded the whole earth with his presence, the Garden of Eden and the earth he just created that he said it was good and beautiful and amazing. And so from the first page, we actually see that the temple, or another way to say that is the dwelling place of God, is actually the entire earth.
God doesn't want to be confined to a building or a space. He wants to flood the earth with his presence, which is also the task we are given as disciples of Jesus to go flood the earth with his presence. And so from the beginning, you see that God wants to dwell in his temple, or another way to put that is God wants to dwell on earth and flood the earth with his presence. But then as we go on, I mean, we only get a page or two later, and we see that the humans rebelled. They kind of tried to stage a coup. They said, we don't want you to be God. We don't want you to be king. We want to take those titles. We want to take those identities. And everything fractured. It broke. It didn't work how it was supposed to work anymore. There was no longer shalom, which is that Hebrew word for everything, kind of firing on all cylinders. There's peace and joy and beauty. That all just snapped in an instant. The minute they said, we want your throne. But instead of God saying, okay, you know what? If that's what you guys want to do, I'm just going to pull out. I never want to be involved in this anymore. He actually says, no, no, no. My goal from the beginning is to dwell with my people, which I proved in Genesis 1 and 2, that my goal is to flood the earth with my presence and to walk with my creation, to walk with my people. And so he still, as a God who is faithful, says that is my goal. I am still going to get that. And so instead of fully retreating and leaving us on our own, he actually, from the very next page, begins to pursue and come after us. And that's when we get the story of Abraham, which then goes all the way to the story of Israel. And we see immediately when he pulls them out of Egypt into the wilderness, he immediately has them build a tabernacle, which then kind of is the form that turns into the temple. And that is the very dwelling place of God. He says, I want to be with you. I don't want to be up there, be lofty and be far away. I want to actually enter into your level, come down to your level and be and walk with my people. interesting when you zoom back on the scriptures you see this temple theme all the way throughout but there's something that actually is happening where every time you see God reveal himself in a temple way it's always one step closer to his people or another way to put it is one more step of vulnerability or intimacy God wants to constantly get closer to us he wants to know us more and more and more so he keeps stepping farther and farther down to us and I think the first act of that play is the one we see in Israel where he dwells in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Now you would think the nation of Israel having the very creator God of the universe dwelling his presence among them would say, oh, this is amazing. This is exactly what we want. Completely bow and worship. And there's that to some degree, but you pretty quickly see in the narrative of Israel that they were stiff-necked, I think the uh, scriptures say, or they were hard-hearted or they rebelled or they didn't want anything to do with him. And they actually turned away to other false gods, to things they could craft and make with their own hands rather than the infinite, beautiful, reckless, amazing, God of the universe that was dwelling in the temple. And so they rebel and they rebel and that goes hundreds and hundreds of years, which you think at any time, God could say, fine, I am so sick of this. I have reached the end of my rope, but, and he pulls back. But instead, he actually says, no, 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 I'm going to get closer to my people. I'm going to keep pursuing them because my love is going to win. It's going to beat their rebellion. I'm going to keep loving and pursuing them. So after hundreds and hundreds of years, they keep rebelling. They keep being stiff-necked. They keep being hard-hearted. And God finally says, you know what? I'm going to go one step farther. I'm going to go one step down more to my people because hopefully that will finally get their attention. So he's God in the temple. He's God dwelling in that building in an act of vulnerability and intimacy. And he says, you know what? I want to go closer. And so 
after hundreds of years of that battle back and forth, we then get to the part of scripture in the gospels where it's God in Jesus. And John specifically tries to play on these notes where you see John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. John is very clearly trying to echo Genesis, get people to invoke that language and think of that narrative as it's happening. And then you skip down 14 verses, John 1.14, which is a classic Christmas verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in Greek literally means tabernacle or the exact translation is he pitched his tent in our backyard. God pitched his tent among his people. He wanted to dwell with his people and he's now God in Jesus. And that's a huge act of vulnerability if you think about it because now this God is walking among us. This God gets tired. This God gets hungry. This God uh, grieves. He can be rejected and there's pain and there's hurt and all these different things. And you think that God coming totally on our level, wrapping himself in human flesh would finally get our attention. But instead, it's just like the nation of Israel. They rebel. They say, we don't want you. And we ultimately know how that narrative ends. We actually kill him and put him on the cross and reject the very God that came to his own people. think at that point, that might be the climax of him finally saying, fine, I'm done with you guys. I mean, God has the power to snap his fingers and we're all gone. But he says, no, 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 this was all part of the plan. I'm going to be with my people. So he resurrects, which is this monumental moment and there's new life and he comes out of the grave and he says, you know what? I'm going to go one step farther. If they want to keep rejecting me and keep rebelling, I'm actually going to go one step more down to my people, which is where we get Pentecost, God, the spirit. And now it says God, after Jesus and the resurrection, now dwells in us by the power of the Spirit. I mean, it doesn't get much more vulnerable than that. You can actually grieve the very Spirit of God because he's now in us. And so if you see that pattern, it's God in the temple and he says, no, no, I'm gonna get closer. God in Jesus, no, I'm gonna get closer. God in us by the very power of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to flood this earth with his presence, which is the exact theme we saw in Genesis. And that goes all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, where it says we don't even need a temple anymore when the new heavens and the new earth are fully married back together because God becomes our very dwelling place. Think of a verse in the Old Testament where it kind of is prophesying about what's going to happen or what's it going to look like when God fully restores and kind of gets his goal of full intimacy, of full vulnerability, or full Genesis reimagined of what it was like when God was down here with us. And the prophecy or the, the verse basically says that at the end of time, when that finally happens, when full restoration happens, that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. Or another translation, I think, says that the glory or the presence of the Lord will cover the earth the way the water covers the sea. And that sounds cute and poetic, but if you really think about it, it makes no sense, right? I mean, how does water cover the sea? If, if Last time I checked, water was the sea, right? I mean, we live a few blocks from the beach here in Kihei, Maui, and if you try to take the sea out of the water, or if you try to take the water out of the sea, per se, you kind of just took the sea with you. You kind of just took the ocean with you. And what it's trying to actually say is you can't separate them, right? Water and ocean and water and sea are the same thing, so much so that you can't pull them apart. And that's what I think that verse 
is trying to get at. I think that verse is trying to communicate that God, when he finally gets his goal, because he took the long way, by the way, he didn't force us into submission, but he's wooing us by his descent, by him coming, coming down to us, that when you see at the end of time, his glory or his presence or his beauty or kind of that, that presence of the temple again is going to be so intimate with his people. It's so going to saturate the earth, which was the exact goal of Genesis the whole time, that you won't even be able to separate it from the earth and from us anymore because he will finally have gotten his goal. So when you zoom back on scripture and you see that narrative, you see that descent, the question is, is that how you read the story? Is that the story you enter into? As we talked about the session before, a God who is descending and pursuing and coming after us. And the question is, are you responding to that? Because when I grew up in the church, I always kind of heard the, the, the phrase that Jesus is on his throne or God's on his throne, which is totally true, that's in scripture. But I always conjured up this image of him just sitting there, kind of being stagnant, not really doing anything. But those verses are more about his authority, that he's reigning in peace and justice, and he's fully king and fully reigning in authority. And so I got this notion that he was just kind of sitting there not doing anything. And the, the, the hard part about that is if he's just sitting there and he, he's not moving and he's not active and he's not pursuing, well, then I don't have to do anything. I can be stagnant. I don't have to kind of dive in or I don't really have to turn around and reject him. But when he's coming down, when he's descending that stairs of heaven per se, when he's coming to his people in full beauty and abandon, getting his goal of dwelling and walking with his people, which is what he wanted from the beginning, and just like the law of physics where every action has an equal and opposite reaction, so it is with God that we have no choice to be stagnant. If he's coming down to his people, we either have to react in intimacy as well. We have to be vulnerable and dive in. I think it was C.S. Lewis who actually said to love is to be vulnerable. So if we want to know what love is, we have to be vulnerable. We have to take the mask off and we have to dive into that relationship. And if we continue to reject him, then we run away from him and we see and we lose his peace and his beauty and his joy for our lives. And so that's the challenge for the end of this session. What will you do? Because you don't have an option to be stagnant. God is descending. He's coming down that stairway of heaven in the narrative of scripture, in the person and work of Jesus, with now the spirit going out on earth, coming after us. So the question is, will you step into that? Will you receive that? Or will you turn around and say no? If you want joy, if you want life, if you want beauty, if you want that shalom like we talked about earlier, then that is by us saying yes to that call.